So this is Michael Wills, Vice President for Strategy at the National Bureau of Asian Research, or NBR. Uh, I'm here today with Ashley Tellis. Ashley holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and is a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. For the last 14 years, he's also served as Research Director for NBR's Strategic Asia Program. Ashley has joined us today to discuss this year's volume, Strategic Asia 2017-18, Power, Ideas and Military Strategy in the Asia-Pacific. Ashley, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Thank you, Michael. This is the third concluding volume in a three-year series on national power, strategic culture, and national and military strategy. For listeners who may not have had the chance to read the first two books, uh, and even for those who have, could you start by talking a little bit about how this book builds upon the previous two, which explored the material foundations of national power and the ideational elements of strategic culture? Well, this is the first time we've attempted to do an integrated research project over multiple years. And as you indicated, we tried to do something that we haven't done before, which is build a research program that cumulatively draws on previous year's work. So in the first year, we tried to understand what is it that makes the Asian states powerful. And that takes you naturally to looking at their material capabilities but more importantly to their state capacity to build those capabilities. And so we spent the first year really investigating the material foundations of power. In the second year, we switched from the material to the ideation and we looked closely at strategic culture. And culture essentially for practical purposes refers to the worldviews that countries have with respect to the use of force, the instruments of force, and the acquisition of those instruments. And in the third year, what we tried to do was bring together the insights from the first volume, which looked at the material foundations, and the second volume, which looked at worldviews, and try to understand how these two variables interacting with one another produce certain grand strategies, and more importantly, specific national military strategies that address key problems that these countries face in international and regional politics. So the whole effort taken together spanned a three-year program, but each, uh, each volume sort of built on the insights of the preceding year. That's great. And let's unpack this third one a little bit more because um, when we look at the national military strategies from a methodological perspective, how does one actually examine that? Um, and, and how did we do it in this volume in a way that's maybe different than others have done in other contexts? Well, this is important because when one uses even the terms national military strategy, uh, it's worth reminding ourselves that it's an abstraction, that a national military strategy does not exist in some prepackaged form somewhere. It's a strategy that has to be discerned by the observer or the analyst. And this is true even for countries that claim uh, to have formal national military strategies like the United States. Uh, the fact that document of that kind exists doesn't absolve the reader from sort of analyzing uh, the symmetry of the document to the practice of military strategy. And for many countries which don't have formal national military strategies, the task becomes even more challenging because you have to understand all the building blocks that go into the making of it. 
most of the research that has been done so far on this topic has really addressed the question at a very bureaucratic level. How does the document come about? Which are the offices that contribute to its production? And how is the process of negotiation conducted within government? What we try to do is stay away from essentially this bureaucratic examination, important though it is, uh, to look at some structural factors. And so the question for us was, what are the big strategic problems that the given country in question faces? How does it think of military instruments as helping it to navigate those strategic problems? And what kind of strategies do these countries develop to resolve those strategic problems? So we are looking at it at a, at a structural level rather than at a bureaucratic level. Mm-hmm. And that provides uh, the analyst actually with a very challenging sort of work program because you've got to sort of find documents if the documents exist. If the documents don't exist, you've got to look at the whole repository of thinking about strategic problems in that country and then tease out from that body of thinking. Are there recurring patterns in the past that shed some light on the issue? What are the capabilities that the country has? What capabilities is it acquiring? What capabilities does it seek? And then from all the answers to these questions, sort of tell a tale about what a national military strategy must mean to this country in question. So there's quite a bit of room uh, for interpretation, but interpretation anchored in some understanding of history, of geography, and of politics. And that's a particular challenge given the range of countries that we're looking at in this year's volume. So Strategic Asia really looked at the six major powers of the Asia-Pacific, China, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, India, Russia, which at MBR we view as an Asian power. And the seventh chapter in the volume looks at the United States. All seven of these countries clearly have very different strategic contexts in which they're operating and very different ideas about where they're trying to go. Um, as you stand back and as you think about the overview chapter that you wrote, Ashley, were there some common variables that emerged across all countries? I think the single most important commonality across all countries is the primacy of domestic politics. And it's curious, it was actually surprising to me because, you know, I've been brought up in the realist tradition. And you tend to think of the objective realities outside the country as having disproportionate impact on the choices countries make. In fact, for most realists, academic and otherwise, there's almost a straight line progression from the problem set abroad and the choices the country makes. And if there is anything that comes through very clearly in this year's volume, is that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that progression, but that progression is refracted very much through domestic politics. And so one has to really look at the internal makeup of the state and the way the state interprets the external environment before one can sort of draw the conclusions one one wants about how states respond. And this is true irrespective of the country you look at. So whether you look at Russia or China or India or Japan, domestic politics plays a disproportionately large role 
in sort of mediating the pressures of the external world to the final choices that are made at the level of strategy and military capabilities. Mm. Give me an example or two of that so that we can see how that actually works out in a particular country's case. I mean, take the example of Russia. Um, Russia today is building its national capabilities on a premise that most in the West would find very difficult to accept. And that is that the West poses very serious threats to the security of the Russian state. I mean, if you ask anyone in Western Europe, if you ask anyone in NATO, if you ask anyone in the US, the idea that the West actually is sort of embarking on a campaign to undermine uh, Russia would be laughable. But that's not the way the Russian state sees it. It's certainly not the way Putin sees it, right? Uh, and so based on the premise that the West actually constitutes a serious threat to Russian national interest, Russia is building a variety of military capabilities, all the way from the modernization of its strategic nuclear forces to a very substantial conventional modernization, all the way to the use of gray area capabilities, whether this be in the realm of hybrid warfare or cyber or what have you, all designed to weaken what it sees as its principal adversary at a time when the principal adversary or the supposed principal adversary has great difficulty thinking of itself as the principal mm -hmm. adversary. So what explains this? What explains this is the critical role of the domestic and in particular the person of Putin and the Putin regime in the threat perception which shapes Russian choices. I would say the same is true uh, for China. Uh, Xi Jinping sees the West as being an overbearing power that China has to come to terms with, especially in the personification of the United States. And while the United States may profess that its objectives towards China are all extremely benign, and while it might remind the Chinese at every step that the U.S. has been responsible for sponsoring Chinese, China's integration into the global economic system. If you are in Beijing, the notion of the, the West or the United States being simply a straightforward champion of Chinese interests, I think there'd be a lot of skepticism about that view. And so uh, Xi Jinping's own interest in domestic survival the survival of the regime, uh, the aims of the regime really become the lens through which China looks at the outside world and sees the United States in particular in less than benign terms hmm. than the U.S. might see for itself. And that's what shapes China's calculations uh, about its strategic environment. And it shapes China's uh, acquisitions and the way in which it thinks about the possible uses of military force. And I would say in different variations, you'd get the same story in Japan, you'd get the same story in India. Right. And China looms large in the minds of policymakers across the region. So let's take this a little further with China specifically. If these are the factors that are driving Xi Jinping and the, and the regime in Beijing to understand how it views the world and understand the strategic challenges that it perceives itself to be facing, um, what are China's strategies now, both at the grand strategic level and at the national military strategy level? What is China trying to achieve in its current set of activities in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific region? I mean, this is an interesting question because I think we are witness to a Chinese strategy that is an evolution before our eyes. For the last 30-odd years, 
Chinese strategy essentially focused on the patient accumulation of power and a very considered reluctance to manifest that power because the state was really concentrating on building up capabilities without evoking alarm. I think today China has now crossed the threshold where it feels it has accumulated sufficient power to have changed the global balances and has reached the point now where China wants the privileges that come from that accumulated power. And so particularly with Xi going forward, there appears to be an interest in China now enjoying the privileges of being a great power that has arrived. And so I would say there is a remarkable evolution in China's grand strategy and its military strategies uh, when one looks at it, say, since 1979 onwards. Uh, we are at that moment of inflection today where Chinese grand strategy going forward is going to be clearly staking its claims for all the privileges that come from having reached the sort of core of the global system. China no longer makes any bones about hiding its power. And its military strategy is sort of keeping pace with that expanding ambition. Uh, in the volume, uh, Oriana Mestro Schuyler, who has written the chapter on China, talks about China's national military strategy as increasingly being one of national power projection. I think that is absolutely right. Where the debate going forward will be, the limits of that power projection. Is the power projection restricted primarily to the littoral spaces around China? Is that power projection aimed at continental-wide, shaping continental-wide outcomes? Or is that power projection eventually aimed at leaving its impress on the larger global system? I think that's really where the debate is. Mm. Um, Oriana takes the view that power projection is aimed primarily at the region. Uh, my own view is that that is an accurate reading of where China's national military strategy is today. But the question of where that strategy might go tomorrow is still somewhat open-ended. That if China's power accumulation continues successfully for another decade, maybe two, then it would be realistic to assume that China will look way beyond power projection in Asia to power projection globally. Now, this doesn't mean that Chinese power will somehow uh, be able to surmount all the problems of the gradient associated with distance. I mean, as China reaches beyond its own region, its power will certainly be weaker. Uh, the expression of that power will be weaker than the expression of power close to home. But the point is, I think we are at that moment where we are really witnessing China potentially becoming a global power of consequence, not right. just at the political level, 
And that's certainly consistent with what we hear from Xi Jinping at the Party Congress um, recently with this idea of China moving to center stage. I mean, yes. the, the, the idea of a progression to this position as a global power is sort of encapsulated in, in that statement. Let me then push you on this question of, of dis relative distance from China. So if we look at the countries in Northeast Asia, Japan, South Korea, how are they responding to this challenge that China's growing power presents? I mean, they have a dilemma that in many ways, even those that are further away have to confront, which is that their economic prosperity is linked very much to some degree of integration with the Chinese economy. And yet, while their prosperity is a function of close economic ties with China, they are still cognizant of the fact that they want to protect their political autonomy. And their political autonomy uh, is something they want to preserve even in the face of a growing Chinese ascendancy. And so the temptation for many of these states is to, even as they deepen their economic links with China, to look beyond China for alliances and partnerships in order to create the requisite buffers that give them freedom of action vis-a-vis -vis Beijing. It's not an easy uh, sort of circle to square uh, because the things that bring them close to China have the potential to reduce their autonomy. And so the question is, how do they preserve all the benefits of interdependence while still building the right set of insurance mechanisms, which may be either through forms of internal balancing or external alliance arrangements uh, that still give them the freedom to, when necessary, oppose China if that's what's required. Mm. And this, in a way, this also evokes this idea of the domestic political situation having a major influence on how countries respond to challenges arising from their strategic environment. Absolutely, because as national leaders make this choice, they will be cognizant not just simply of changes in the external environment, but the impact of this external environment on their own political fortunes at home. And so they are going to sort of reach the solution, whatever solution they finally end up with, essentially through uh, the opportunities and the constraints which bear upon them first and foremost in terms of their own domestic politics. Let me move to another part of the region that we looked at, which is, um, which is India. Um, India is obviously looking at China with a measure of apprehension. Um, uh, how have... India's political and military elites responded to the challenge presented by China, whether that's at the military side, with the PLA's growing influence and presence in, in the Indian Ocean, but also on the economic side, as we look at some of the ambitions that are encapsulated in the Belt and Road Initiative, from a strategic perspective, that clearly has the potential to change the environment in which India is situated. And I'm curious how, how Delhi is reacting to that and, and what strategic approaches uh, India is taking? This is an entirely new strategic problem for New Delhi. Uh, for almost 200 years, ever since the British sort of secured control of the subcontinent, the aim of British Indian strategy and later on Indian strategy was to essentially insulate the broader subcontinent from uh, the penetration by any major power. So the British built a system of buffer states and attempted to protect the Raj. Uh, independent India did pretty much the same thing. And non-alignment was really a way of avoiding the Cold War from penetrating the subcontinent. 
Today, this strategy has completely collapsed with the rise of China. Because for the first time in you know 5,000 years of Indian history, India has to deal with the prospect of a genuine superpower on its own doorsteps. And this is a challenge that India has never had to face historically. The great powers were always far away. And India had the luxury of adopting various political solutions that would keep them far away. Today, there's no way to keep China far away. And so Delhi is struggling to cope with this reality. And I think what it is sort of gravitating towards now, and it will not be a smooth sort of uh, solution, but it will, in fits and starts, gravitate towards a solution that ends up with a combination of components. First, I think it becomes incumbent on India to be much more efficient at internal balancing than it was before. As long as Pakistan was a threat, India had power advantages. It could afford to be sloppy. If China is the challenger, India cannot afford to be sloppy because the power differential favors China, not India. Second, India has to begin to think of building some sort of external partnerships, which it shied away from for the last 70 years. And the legacy of non-alignment sort of tended to reinforce that antipathy to external partnerships. Today, India has to look for external partners, no matter how uncomfortable that prospect may be. The question that India has is how does it how does it find the right mix of having the right external partners, meaning the partners who are most effective, while still being able to maintain a modicum of its own autonomy. And there are challenges here because the strongest partner, the United States, is a partner that India has in the past had an uncomfortable relationship with. And so it has to overcome the legacies of history. Uh, the Asian partners are much weaker uh, in many ways than the United States is, and therefore may not be good enough substitutes. So I suspect India will end up with a portfolio of partners, because I don't think it has the luxury of any single partnership. And so while it's going to make the efforts to reach out to the US, you will also see India's strategic diversification taking it closer to Japan, in time taking it closer to Australia, while continuing to sort of hold on to whatever the legacy relationship with Russia could, can continue to yield. So for India, there will be a shift towards partnerships as opposed to the old uh, right. vision of non-alignment. But I don't think the Indians will succumb to any single strategic partnership. So let me come to the other side of the equation on one of those uh, dyads, if you will. Um, for many administrations, we have assumed that the U.S. approach to the region has been very consistent, uh, that U.S. alliances and partnerships have been on a trajectory which is understood, uh, relatively unchanging, bonds have been deepening. Um, obviously, last year's election and the arrival of the Trump administration have changed that narrative. I'm curious to what extent that's changed realities on the ground, and how are Asia's powers responding to what might be called a, a greater ambivalence on the part of the United States about the value of these alliances and these relationships in the region? I think this is the single most convulsive development in Asian geopolitics since the end of the Cold War. Because until the advent of the Trump administration, the fundamental uncertainties were about U.S. capacity. Everyone believed that the U.S. was 
committed to sustaining its hegemonic role, though there were various questions about whether the U.S. had the resources to sustain that role in a way that it did at the high tide of the Cold War. Those questions about American capacity have not disappeared. In fact, they may become even more intense because uh, people see the challenges that the U.S. faces at home. Uh, they see that we haven't yet found the solution to those challenges. But these challenges have been magnified greatly by the fact that in addition to the problems of capacity, we now have the problems of direction itself. It's not clear anymore to the Asian states that the U.S. actually is committed to maintaining its role as a primate in the Asian system. Um, this forces them to make some very hard choices. I think most of the Asian states are hoping against hope that uh, the convulsion represented by Trump's election will be essentially a transient perturbation and that the U.S. will sort of, in fits and starts, come back to something that resembled the old norm. But they have to reckon with the possibility that the U.S. might not. And so there is a genuine struggle, I think, within Asian capitals now on how you cope with this fundamental uncertainty that the anchor on which you built your entire strategy may now be less robust and less durable than you had imagined. I don't think this is a problem that is susceptible to a quick fix. In fact, the contours of the problem itself may not be clearly sort of appreciated not until the Trump sort of revolution runs its course. But this is a profound challenge uh, to all the major Asian powers, or at least those that had sort of hitched their wagon to the American star. I want to push, push you a little bit on that because it, it, it suggests a very interesting question. If we look back over the three-year series, against this reality of increased uncertainty about the, the reliability of the US as a regional security guarantor. Looking at the, the material foundations of national power, looking at the strategic cultures, looking at the formation of military strategies over these three books that we've just produced, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the ability of these six major Asian powers to navigate this more uncertain terrain? Well, it's hard to answer that question in the abstract. But I think what can be said is that from the viewpoint of the United States, the issues are less problems of capacity, though there are still deficits with respect to capacity, uh, and much more a function of choices, political choices, which again are anchored in the exigencies of domestic power. And so in that sense, it reiterates the point I made earlier, which is domestic politics, to my own surprise, turns out to be far more significant in shaping nations' strategic choices. And if one takes the U.S. as essentially the problem in microcosm, then the consequences of American decisions, which are made with domestic political anchors, uh, will have far more consequential effects and in fact effects that go way beyond the United States because everyone has been comfortable taking the U.S. for granted as a permanent fixture in the Asian security system. From now on, I don't think countries will have the luxury of simply presuming that they can count on the U.S. 
we, we may surprise them yet again and go back to our traditional role. But you are going to see quite a bit of, uh, of coming to terms with uncertainty in the next, I would say, three to five, eight years, or as long as you know President Trump remains in office. So we are really at the beginning of a new phase in the post-Cold War system. And if we play our cards right, we will come out stronger. But if we fail at the task, I think we will be leaving behind a much more uncertain and unruly Asia, one that will actually have serious consequences for our own interests. Mm, a sobering thought. Ashley, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. Appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you for your leadership in uh, producing another uh, Strategic Asia book. Well, thank you. I have to thank you for that, too. Um, and to learn more about the Strategic Asia program in this year's book, uh, Power, Ideas, and Military Strategy in the Asia-Pacific, you can visit our website at www.nbr.org. Thank you.